I suspect that few of us have not imagined what life would be like if we'd won the Illinois Lottery's largest Powerball jackpot ever, $550 million last November 28th. Anybody ever dream about that? Heck, I mean, I'd even settle, you know, for matching five of the white balls and not the Powerball for a cool million dollars. Or we imagine what it would be like to be Donald Shear, who bought a generic and torn painting at a flea market for $4 because he liked the frame. Upon removing the worthless painting from the frame, he discovered a piece of paper that was stuck between uh, the canvas and the frame. And when he unfolded uh, this uh, uh, piece of paper, he realized he was holding one of the finest and crispest copies of the Declaration of Independence that had ever yet been discovered. The document sold later uh, for uh, a cool price of $2.42 million. I I imagine we all uh, imagine that life would be just a little easier if we were making just a little more money than we're making right now. Or we imagine that we'd be happier if uh, we were a little more outgoing or a little less anxious, if we had more friends and less work, if we were in shape and out of debt. Or if we could just quit smoking or start reading, lay down a a bad habit or pick up a hobby. Now, while many of these things might might be nice and actually uh, quite beneficial in, in, in many cases, what is it that we're really looking for? Well, this morning we're kicking off a brand new sermon series that I've titled How to Get the Life We Really Want. Now, theologians and philosophers and psychologists and anthropologists have long debated about what the Bible meant when it said in the very first uh, chapter of the very first book, Genesis, that God, quote, created man in his own image or likeness, unquote. Whatever else this might suggest, uh, I, I think it means that Being created in God's image is that we all receive thumbprints of the divine nature. We all yearn for love and significance and security. And these are the things that we're really looking for. Anything else is just gravy. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be digging and seeing if we can't discover the things that propel us in the direction of the life that we really want. Let's pray together. Lord, at the start of this brand new day, the brand new week, and a brand new year, we just say thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for soundness of mind and health of body that allows us to set everything else aside that competes for our time and attention and give ourselves fully to you. We want today's uh, worship to be an act of surrender and expression of our desire to make our lives count for you. We pray now, Lord, in this hour that you would visit us by your Holy Spirit, bring your power and your presence to bear in our lives. We thank you for your sovereign beauty that in each one uh, you can you can map out and, and interact with us exactly where we are. And not just here in this room, Lord, but right next door where Vineyard Kids are worshiping and learning and growing and praying at the same time. We give you our lives and say put power on your word to us today in your name. Amen. Well, for thousands of years, God's people have been inspired and encouraged as they've Uh, listened to as they've sung, and only more recently, several hundred years, 
actually read the words of Scripture themselves. And one of the most loved portions of the Bible is the book of Psalms. And if you have a a Bible or a Bible app, you might want to open to Psalm 144 this morning. Um, As a prelude to my message, I I want to share this, what I, I sense is a prophetic picture of the life into which God is inviting us as a church family. Psalm 144, beginning in verse 12. May your sons flourish in their youth like well-nurtured plants. May our daughters be like graceful pillars carved to beautify a palace. May our barns be filled with crops of every kind. May the flocks in our fields multiply by the thousands, even tens of thousands. And may our oxen be loaded down with produce. May there be no enemy breaking through our walls, no going into captivity, no cries of alarm in our town squares. Yes, joyful are those who live like this, joyful indeed are those whose God is the Lord. I think these these few verses capture a, a picture, as it were, an inspired picture of what God is inviting us into. Verse 12 speaks of love, our sense of belonging, and it uses the the metaphor, the imagery of sons and daughters. Verses 13 to 14a speak of significance, that is, the the purpose and the work of our hands at that time was largely agrarian. And the blessing in in our individual callings when they're fleshed out. And then um, verses 14b to 15 speak of security, our physiological sense of well-being and security. And it's punctuated in verse 15 with great joy. And in a way, I think these few verses capture a a picture of the life that we really want. We read that and we think, that's that's what I would like. Of course, the question that immediately follows then is, how do we get that? Well, let's turn over to Mark's gospel. The second gospel in the New Testament, Mark. Mark is the photographer of the of the four gospel writers, his very short gospel is filled with a collection of snapshots. They form a collage of what the life and ministry of Christ looked like. And uh, parenthetically, we will actually work our way through the entire gospel of Mark during our 40-day adventure that launches on uh, Ash Wednesday and culminates on Easter. we're, we're fond of doing a, what we call in this church family a 40-day adventure, and you're going to be invited into that. And this year, we're actually going to walk through the, the gospel of Mark following the radical Jesus. But Mark uh, uh, is, uh, is cryptic, and, and it's dense and compact, and so we're going to spend a few weeks here uh, in, in the, the opening several chapters. Um, If we believe that Jesus is the wisest man that ever lived and that he showed us the way to the life we really want, then it behooves us to to let what he said and did inform and shape our approach to life. Right. And so we're going to we're going to begin reading here in verse 14 and 15 of chapter one. Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news or gospel. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near or at hand. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, Jesus inaugurated uh, what scholars call the great Galilean ministry 
with this announcement of good news, the gospel, the good news, that the kingdom of God had come. It was here. It was at hand. The gospel was not the death, burial, and resurrection of himself, because that obviously hadn't happened yet. It, it will not have happened for another several years. But rather that the long-awaited time of God's intervention in the history of humanity, as promised by the prophets, had actually now arrived. The gospel, as we more traditionally understand Christ's death and burial and resurrection, was later enfolded into the good news that the early church taught. But Jesus was saying that the good news that he was proclaiming was that the kingdom of God had now come. The time that God had been promising for centuries had finally arrived. This was the good news. So everything Jesus did and said in terms of bringing real life was in the context of the kingdom of God. Real life is in God's kingdom. So let's continue reading now in verses uh, 16 to 20. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat, repairing their nets. And he called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. So I want to suggest this morning that the first step towards the life we really want is following Jesus. Now, did you notice in the text that Jesus called out to the four, come, follow me? And then Simon and Andrew and James and John left their nets and their father and the other hired men to follow Jesus. This is our first and foundational call to follow Jesus. Now, in past readings of this text, I've had this mental picture of Jesus and uh, walking up to these four uh, working uh, class blue collar fishermen uh, strangers, total strangers, and then asking them to follow him with, with their little understanding of who he was or where they were going and their immediate uh, acceptance of that invitation. Now, this is not to diminish our surprise at this startling, unorthodox, and radical decision, but that is to say, this is not the first time that they've ever heard Jesus preach or teach or maybe even hear this invitation. If you accurately compile a timeline of the four Gospels, you'll discover that Jesus actually made the inaugural announcement in verses 14 and 15 almost a year earlier in what scholars call the early Judean ministry. Sandwiched between Mark 1.15 and Mark 1.16 are the chapters, John chapters 1 through 4 in John's gospel. And so what happens in this time is that when you read John's gospel, you see that the, the four men, uh, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, actually accompanied Jesus to his first miracle there at the, at the wedding in Cana, 
They witnessed the healing of the nobleman's son. They experienced the rejection at Nazareth and his settling into a home in Capernaum, the early Judean ministry. Now, by Mark 1.16, the four men had, as partners in the fishing business, had apparently taken up their duties as fishermen again. And no doubt they'd been mulling over the significance of that first miracle of turning the water into wine. And they they had seen his early healings, as dramatic as they were. Perhaps they'd been ruminating on Christ's early sermons and maybe had time to actually count the cost of following him and hearing that invitation for the very first time. And now, having perhaps had the last year to think about it and reflect upon it and weigh the cost, they heard the call again and they left their nets and the business to abandon it and follow Jesus. Now, nevertheless, it's still a startling unorthodox and radical decision, isn't it? They left their nets, their father, the business, life as they knew it, and they followed Jesus. I love this language in the New Testament uh, that it uses to describe our first and foundational step towards the life that we really want, the language of following Jesus. I love it because it's powerfully descriptive. Uh, to follow is a verb. It's an action verb. And it implies decision and action, pursuing, imitating. It, it's not merely a cerebral or an intellectual idea or philosophy, an approach to life. Christianity is following Jesus. I believe our culture has obscured this notion. The overwhelming majority of people that have been born in America uh, have historically considered themselves Christian. We're a Christian nation. We identify ourselves as Christian because we're born into a Christian nation. And in the church, in, in the last several hundred years at least, uh, we've, uh, we've talked about getting saved and being born again, believing the gospel, praying the sinner's prayer, Joining a church, making a decision, making a commitment, signing a pledge card, raising our hand, walking the aisle, coming to the altar, repenting, being converted, becoming righteous, getting holy, finding religion, and even accepting Jesus. Now, all of these are valid. They have historical significance, and may even be the lens through which you interpret or describe your initial experiences with God. And that's fine. But I think that the most accurate language that Jesus used to describe our relationship is for his disciples to follow him. Perhaps we should be more intentional or deliberate in our language. Language is important. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had to go to the Methodist clinic up here on North Allen uh, to do a blood sample as part of my annual physical exam. Dr. Walsh ordered the test, so I showed up there. He had to fast 12 hours before you you do. You can't eat or drink anything. Uh, That's not terribly difficult, but as the nurse was drawing my blood... Uh, she made some comment about how she was sure that I was like anxious to ready and ready to eat and drink. 
I kind of shrugged and said, well, actually, you know, if more people were regularly practicing fasting as a discipline in their lives, then, you know, the 12 hours wouldn't be a big deal. And she was like very startled, very curious, actually, why anyone would intentionally fast. And so this opened up a conversation and asked, like, well, did I fast? And I said, well, actually, I do. Um, and then I explained like a little bit of what, what it was. And by now, um, a Muslim nurse had joined us in the conversation, and she was overhearing the whole thing. And so she said, oh, well, my parents and my grandparents fasted during Ramadan for 30 days. And rather sheepishly admitted that, well, I don't fast really, but but they did. So she was not unfamiliar with the practice. And then she asked, what religion are you? And knowing that I've been wrestling, you know, with these concepts that I'm sharing with you this morning now for the last several weeks, knowing all the cultural baggage that's associated with the label Christian, knowing that she's a Muslim, uh, or at least culturally so, I replied, I'm a follower of Jesus. To which the other nurse that I suspect was a Christian was, again, rather startled that I would identify myself as such. It changes people's paradigms when we use the powerful language that Jesus used. And you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. Because in our, in our culture, Christian, though as a label, has so much baggage. Christianity is not a label. It's not about calling ourselves something, uh, a, a Christian. It's not about believing a, a, a set of doctrines or a, a creed. It's not about even trying to be good and nice. We ought to be good and nice, but it's not what it's about. It's not tr- trying to manage our sin and you know behavioral management. It's not about attending church and then just waiting for Jesus to come back so we can go to live with him in heaven. We're to actually hear and obey Jesus, the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who's now the Lord of the, of, of the universe, sitting on the throne. We're to actually speak the words of Jesus. We're to do the works of Jesus. We're to live the life of Jesus. We're, we're to hear and obey. We're to follow him. And this implies a, a close dynamic relationship of following him as we're empowered by his indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. Now we see this powerful language of following Jesus by way of illustration in Mark's uh, gospel, the second chapter, when he called Levi or Matthew to follow him. Mark 2, verse 13, Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. There it is again. Now, we also see it in Jesus' teaching recorded for us in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. Luke 9.23, on one occasion in one sermon, Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must deny yourself, turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And then in one of his pastoral discourses recorded for us in John's gospel, the 10th chapter, Jesus said, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So Jesus invites us to follow him. And I would suggest to 
our church family today that this is the first and foundational step towards the life that we really want. Now, following Jesus necessarily implies that we are no longer following something else, namely the path of our own choosing, the denying of self or selfish ways that Jesus said you have to abandon in order to take up the cross and follow him. So we surrender or give up our path, the path of our choosing. That's what's implied, at least in my mind, in the language, turn from your selfish ways, or perhaps more traditionally rendered, deny yourself. You see, there are a lot of things that compete for supremacy in our lives, aren't they? We're no stranger to this battle. For our time, our energy, our attention and resources, a lot of things are competing in the year 2013 for those things in your life. And in a compartmentalized view of life, following Jesus gets relegated to uh, just one slice because there's so many other things competing for our time and our energy. But in an integrated life, Jesus, following Jesus, informs and shapes every aspect of our life. It's not just kind of like, like following Jesus is bolted on to our otherwise normal life. It thoroughly integrates. Now, I've shown these two graphics on the screen on another occasion, but they're powerful enough to bear repeating. And so I want to illustrate this principle with two diagrams. In the first diagram, you have what I've labeled as a compartmentalized life. And in this case, following Jesus or Jesus and his church, as it's there represented, is but one of the many slices of the pie of life. Uh, the, the pie of life also includes marriage and family and children, work, recreation and fitness, leisure, education, friends, hobbies. And depending on your life and place and station, there may be several other um, slices as well that aren't represented there. But it's a compartmentalized view of life where our relationship with Jesus is relegated to perhaps an hour a week on maybe two or three out of four or five Sundays a, a month perhaps attending a small group if the notion strikes you, giving an occasional offering, perhaps reading the Bible once in a while, and praying, of course, as a need or a crisis might arise. But after these expressions, we pretty much live the slices of the pie of our life on our own terms and for our own pleasure. Now, in the second diagram, as contrasted with the compartmentalized view, is what we might call an integrated Life, where our relationship with Jesus, following Jesus and his people, the church, occupies the very center, the very core of our life, and it informs and shapes and influences every slice of the pie of our lives. Faith, or in this sense, uh, our, our relationship with Jesus or following Jesus in, in community, the community known as the church, is expressed in what we think and what we say and what we do as integrated in every pocket of life. It touches every every pocket. We live one integrated life. We're no different uh, anywhere. There's no difference in secular and sacred. There are no distinctions between that which is public and that which is private. We act the same at home as we do in the marketplace as we do at work. We live one integrated life. No compartmentalized slices where we do as we please and follow our own path. 
we deny ourselves rather and and all the pie slices of the pie of life come under the rule of Christ the king in his kingdom and his kingdom informs and shapes everything we do everything that we do our hobbies, our friends, what we do with our leisure time and our, our spare money, what, how we approach education, what, uh, what priorities we have for recreation and fitness and work and uh, what our relationships and those of us who are married, what they look like and uh, uh, how we still relate to our children and grandchildren. And so uh, one integrated life under the rule of Christ the King. Now, this means, of course, that we're going to have to continually make choices every day, that reflect this priority. It, that's why follow is action. It, as I said before, it, it, it implies decision and action and pursuit and imitation. Those early disciples had to leave something behind when they chose to follow. It was the life that they knew, the life they thought they wanted. They left that which was known, that which, uh, with which they were familiar, with, with which perhaps they were comfortable, for that which was unknown, uncomfortable, and unfamiliar. Unpredictable. There was no roadmap for following Jesus. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know where he would lead them. They didn't know what was ahead. They, 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 they didn't, didn't have an itinerary for the journey. They, they just knew who they were following. And so to follow is to abandon a former view of a compartmentalized life and to actively pursue a now fully integrated life with Christ at the center. It's to bring the centra- centrality of Christ and his kingdom to bear in all of our life's decisions, to have Jesus inform and shape every slice of the pie of life as we follow him. Now, following Jesus in this way is going to lead us into a lifetime of experiences with God. Following Jesus, because he's alive. He's he's active today. He's revealing himself. He's forgiving and speaking and healing and answering prayers and encouraging and challenging. Now, if you take a quick glimpse at the balance of Mark chapter 1, You'll see all kinds of experiences that come in following Jesus. It's the kind of thing that we're going to be propelled towards. Verses 21 to 28, Jesus casts out a demon uh, out of a man in the church and sets this oppressed man free. Verses 29 to 34, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and then many others. And then he casts out demons, providing help for today, hope for tomorrow to people who had neither. Verse uh, 39, Jesus preached that he's he's interacting with people around the truth. And then in verses 40 to 45, he healed a man with leprosy, ministered to the socially outcast. And so following Jesus is going to lead to all kinds of experiences with God and people. Jesus teaches how to live under God's rule. He engages people, he meets them, and he points them to God. He reinterprets their understanding and practice of religious traditions. He encourages, he relieves their anxieties and their fears. He restores those who have been marginalized. He forgives the sinner, he lifts the broken, he provides hope for the hopeless. This is the kind of thing we can expect as part of our everyday 
getting up, going to work life when we follow Jesus. He meets the needs of men, women, and children for love, significance, and security, the life we really want. When we follow Jesus and he causes us to experience God and his kingdom in these ways, our lives will be filled with love and peace and joy and justice and rest and beauty. And that's the life I think we really want. That's the life we're really looking for. So right now you may be thinking, well, Ben, this is great, but is it even possible to really experience God in this way? I mean, if you knew the details of my life, well, let me be direct and honest about my presuppositions. You see, every school of thought begins with taking certain things for granted. Every school of thought, art, music, astronomy, science, chemistry, whatever, uh, music, there are theories that we take for granted. What's necessary for accurate communication is that we be clear and direct about our presuppositions. I'm sharing two with you today. We can unpack these at another time, but for the sake of of, of clarity and speed, let me share uh, directly and honestly about my presuppositions and answering the question, and is it possible? I believe, number one, that the invitation from God is indeed genuine. The invitation to real life is genuine. If it's not, I suggest that we disregard the Bible as another book in the long line of sacred literature that's to be admired and inspiring from a distance, but that offers little lasting hope now for me. Great book. Put it on the shelf and admire it, because if if the invitation by Christ to experience real life as we follow him is not genuine, why are we here? We can't follow Jesus in these ways. What's the point of it all anyway? My experience, many of your experience, and the collective experience of billions of Christ followers through history shows that the invitation is sincere. We are not all deluded. Secondly, I believe that Jesus knows about your everyday getting up, going to work, and school life. Your place and station in life has not taken him by surprise. It's not that this is going to work for everybody else, but not for you, because it's so complicated in your life. He knows the job that you've got or don't have. He knows that you're single or married or would like to be the opposite of what you are. He He knows if you're widowed or married with kids and grandkids, that you have laundry to do and and groceries to buy and meals to prepare and bills to pay and a car that needs repairing and a washer that's on the fritz. He understands where you're at. That does not make his offer and invitation less sincere. This is the life right now that he wants us to follow him in, the life you have. That's that's where he wants to uh, uh, invite you to follow him in, right right there. He doesn't want you to trade all of your life circumstances for a new set. Rather, he wants the life that you live right here, right now, in the place and station in, in which you find yourself to be the one in which you follow him. Finding in that life love and significance and security. So no matter where you're at on your personal spiritual journey, I want to suggest this morning that you commit to follow Jesus and see if it doesn't make a difference in your life. That's my invitation. 
See if following Jesus doesn't propel you forward in your experience of God towards the life you really want. I want to urge every one of you, whether you identify yourself as a Christ follower uh, or not, I want to urge every one of you to make a change to more fully follow Jesus in the year 2013. Now, perhaps for you, it's going to be making just one degree of change. Something small but doable that over the trajectory of your whole life, and especially the next year, will make a difference. For others of you, it could perhaps be a startling, unorthodox, and radical decision, a whole life decision to become a follower of Christ, maybe for the very first time. A complete reorientation of your life as it was for Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Or perhaps it's somewhere in between, the one degree of change and a complete reorientation. Maybe it's some other degree of change in the middle. But I encouraging, I'm going to encourage every one of you in our church family to do something to more fully follow Jesus. Now, I'm also going to suggest that we join with the historic church by creating space in our life to experience God through a number of means. The first is through Bible reading. Now, before you just like, like take a list of all three and think like, oh, great, right? Here's the annual, you know, read your Bible, pray, and whatever sermon that the pastor gives. <laughs> Ask the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. This is not a one-size template fits all that identify themselves as members of the Vineyard Church Peoria. It's not, it's not like a template I want to lay on all of you. I want you to listen to the voice of the Lord. And then you hear his voice in, in what steps you're to take to more fully follow him. But I am suggesting that there are three uh, historic ways that the church has, has more fully followed Jesus. And the first is Bible reading. If you do not now read the Bible, make a one degree change by reading a chapter of the Bible or a psalm or one of the Gospels this year. If you don't have a Bible, we've got free Bibles right up here on the stage or back at Guest Central. We'd love to give you a a copy of the Bible in the New Living Translation. You can actually read it and understand it. If you read the Bible but not regularly, then I would encourage you to become a regular Bible reader, three days a week or maybe five. If you are a regular Bible reader, then expand to reading the entire New Testament or the entire book of Psalms, or the entire Old Testament. There are a plethora of reading and listening plans. And I'm going to suggest two websites for you to visit. Uversion.com is perhaps the most popular today. There are hundreds of Bible translations and dozens of different reading plans available on Uversion.com. It's the one I use on on my um, uh, iPhone. And it's free. And uh, if you uh, if you want to take that degree of step of change, I suggest you visit uversion.com first or biblegateway.com is another time-tested uh, website that's got a lot of different avenues to both read and listen. Some of you are aud- more audio-oriented. Uh, you, you may enjoy actually reading or listen, listening while you read the Bible. The one that I prefer, I'm still a paper guy. You know, I'm old-fashioned. I, I, I'm just old, but I'm also old-fashioned. Um, I read the one-year Bible, and this is the one that I've been using for the last 13 years now. 
and uh, it's going, you know, year 14. And the one-year Bible is nice because it's laid out in a portion of the Old Testament and the New Testament, a psalm and a proverb every day. And you never have to, like, think about where you go. You just open up to the day. And so uh, I might suggest the one-year Bible. Uh, they're available on Amazon.com, or I'm sure Harris Berean Bookstore would, would also sell you one. Um, no, no, that, that's not like, any connection to me. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 10% doesn't come back to Vineyard, you know. But uh, the one-year Bible would be a great step. And uh, the neat thing about it is if you get behind a day or two, you, you don't let guilt rule your life. You just pick right back up where on the day it is. Um, so take a step. The one-year Bible is what I prefer. Um, following Jesus, secondly, in prayer. Prayer is simply talking to and listening to God. And again, I'm going to suggest you take a step forward. Now, Jesus suggested that we pray what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. He said, when you pray, pray this way. And it's interesting in, in Mark's gospel, the first chapter there, if you look at verse 35, if your Bible's still open, you'll notice he said, the text reads, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. I think by example, if we're following Jesus, we're going to follow him to a solitary place. We're going to find a time and a place to regularly talk to God. There's great merit in following Jesus into the solitary place where we can connect with God. And then thirdly, following Jesus and other practices. Meditation, that's where we actually spend time focused thinking about God, life, and the Bible. Journaling, where you craft your thoughts and prayers in a notebook or on a computer to God. Some of you, it might be taking a deliberate attempt in nature to connect with God in some fashion. Fasting, silence solitude, worship in song. These are various disciplines uh, that uh, the other practices. Now, please understand there's no merit in these activities themselves. It's not like you're earning brownie points. You're not collecting green stamps. It's not like getting jewels in a video game. You can't power up, you know. (laughs) Sorry, Steve. These activities, historically called the disciplines of the faith, merely provide a landing pad for the Holy Spirit to come and do his work of revealing Jesus to you and inviting you into change. There's no magic in the disciplines themselves. It's like a runway for the Holy Spirit to meet you. Now, lastly, the Holy Spirit may lead you to follow Jesus' example in Mark 1 and embrace several other practices in experiencing God in this way. The first is water baptism. In Mark 1, 9, we read that one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan River. Some of us may find this year that we've never actually been baptized as an adult, as a sign and symbol of our faith. You may want to follow Jesus in the in the act of water baptism. Mark 1.10 reads, Jesus came up out of the water. He saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you're my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. You may find this year that a, a more consistent pattern of being filled with the Spirit and hearing the voice of the Lord as you're filled with the Holy Spirit is, is where Jesus wants to invite you. And for others of you, you may experience Mark 1, uh, verses 12 to 13. The Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. It was there he was among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. 
So Jesus might be inviting you to follow him into a time of testing and trial in the wilderness. So my point here is do whatever Jesus tells you. Follow where he leads you. And as we follow Jesus in the ways that we're describing, I think we'll find a much deeper sense of love and significance and security. We'll understand that we're actually a part of a much larger story that he's writing with our lives and our church family in this world. And he will enlarge our capacities to love and experience joy and peace and rest and beauty. And we will be propelled towards the life that we really want. Lord, we're grateful that you invite us into this life. And it's really with some degree of fear and trepidation, but yet excitement mixed together that we say we want to follow you. Put power on our lives to respond to you in these ways in 2013. And Lord, we want to just say that we love you and use these offerings, Lord, uh, that we give in in this collection and in the songs we sing as ways of indicating to you we want our life to fully count in your name. Amen.